So uh, if you were here last week, you probably know that both Keith and I were away on a backpacking trip uh, with some guys from the church, with uh, Sean Donaldson and Stephen Nate Oldham and Doug Whitmore. And uh, I had never done anything like that before. We did 25 miles on the Appalachian Trail. And, uh, and it was in about two and a half days. The first day was 11 miles. And I've been telling people who, are, who have been asking, oh, how was it? Like, oh, I'm really glad I went. It was really a great experience. But when I was preparing, there were two things I kept thinking about. I kept thinking, I need to have enough food because I was scared of being hungry. And then I also need to be warm at night because I was scared of being cold. But there was one thing that I forgot, which is, am I physically prepared <laughs> to carry 35 pounds on my back for 25 miles on the Appalachian Trail? And I mean, the little bit that it might have crossed my mind, I was like, oh, well, a lot of these guys are older than me. <laughs> you know, I'm, and I, I run, so I, sh I should be fine. Well, okay. <laughs> I am just recovering now. I, it was funny because the next day on Monday, I got a text from Steve and he was like, I feel great. I'm taking the stairs two at a time at work today. And I was like, oh, that's nice, Steve. That's great. <laughs> I get halfway up the stairs and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it the rest of the way. So it was strenuous, but it was a lot of fun. Um, there's a picture of our group at the second shelter that we stayed at. Um, and actually, it was raining here, I'm pretty sure, on Sunday morning, judging from the audio of Bob's sermon. It was definitely raining where we were, too. And actually, I really liked that. If we had had to set up camp that night, that wouldn't have been fun. But you know, getting to spend those last few hours on the trail just in the pouring rain, it feels very adventurous, and it cools you off. And uh, there's Sean and I in, ooh, I mean, just completely soaked. Uh, probably about the time that church was happening. So that's what we were up to. Uh, but for those of you who are here, hopefully you remember that Bob McCoy uh, closed out our Uncommon Sense series on the Proverbs. Uh, I got a chance to listen to that, really appreciated what he had to say. He talked about um, how we best retain and pass on wisdom from one generation to another. I thought it was a good summary of everything so far. And next week, we're going to be starting our Genesis series. Uh, that's going to carry us at least through December. I hope you guys are excited about that. We're going to be, the tagline for that series is finding the present in the beginning. Uh, in other words, we're going to be looking at these ancient stories that in some ways seem very removed from our present day lives. You know, things like talking snakes and Adam and Eve and, and a worldwide flood and and Tower of Babel and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to be asking, what can we learn about our present lives through these ancient stories? Because there is a lot uh, that we can learn. So that's next week. But like Ashley said, this week we're taking a little break to do a Q&A Sunday. And uh, I, was, I was a little concerned at first that I might not have any questions to answer. And then I was going to have to ask myself questions. And that would have been weird. Uh, but you guys came through and asked more questions than I will have time to answer. So I've selected five of them. I've tried to pick some ones that uh, address a variety of issues. Uh, so hopefully everybody will at least have something on their minds addressed this morning. Uh, so before we get into it, let me say a quick prayer for our time. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this morning. 
And uh, we thank you for the minds that you've given us uh, that are uh, always thinking about things, always asking questions, always um, seeking. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, honor the curiosity that exists in this congregation, Lord, that as we seek, we would find, uh, that we would learn more about who you are and who we are and how to live out our faith. And I pray that this morning could be helpful in helping us to do that. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to dive right in first with a question that I'm pretty sure comes from uh, a younger member of our congregation, which is, how was God here before nothing? And if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think what's being asked is essentially, um, how could God exist before anything existed? It's a conceptual issue. Um, or how could there be something if there was nothing? So, good question. Uh, well, my first response to this would be that there really has never been a time when there was absolutely nothing. Uh, there's always been something, and that something that has always been is God. And it's interesting that if you talk with people who are atheists or people who believe in God, everybody always believes that something has always existed. You know, if you talk to people who don't believe in God, the thing that they believe that has always existed is just the natural laws, matter, time, you know, energy. In some form, this has all existed. There's, there's these laws that have always been, and they just are. And those of us who believe in God believe that these laws actually ultimately spring from a self-sufficient source, which is a personality, a mind, God. So... There was never a time when there was absolutely nothing. There has always been something, and that something that has always been is God. Um, so when we say that there was a time when there was nothing, uh, what we're saying is that there was a time when there was no created stuff, no physical stuff, no stuff that you can uh, touch or see or measure or weigh. Um, now, my guess is that the difficulty this person is having is with, with understanding how God or anything else could exist if there's no physical stuff. Right? How can you have anything uh, if there's nothing that exists that can be touched or weighed or measured? Right? It almost seems like a contradiction that something could exist, but there's nothing that can be touched, seen, weighed, or measured. So hopefully I'm understanding the question right, but I think that's the root issue uh, that is being asked here. And I have to admit, it is kind of hard to imagine how something could exist and not be made of stuff, right? Um, but I think we can conceive of how something could exist and not be made of stuff, and I'm going to give a practical illustration of, of that right now. So I want you right now to imagine a tree. You got it? Now, show it to me. I don't see it, so. <laughs> you can't, right? Okay, because the idea that you just had is not something that can be touched, measured, or weighed. It's not something that you can hold in your hand, right? But it was still real. It's still 
existed in some sense. Now, I'm not saying that the tree that you saw in your head actually literally exists in, in a concrete form, but the idea existed, right? And the idea cannot be touched, measured, weighed, or seen, right? So hopefully that helps you a little bit to conceive of how it could be possible for something to exist that isn't physical. Okay, just as God can exist even though there's no stuff, there's no created stuff. Okay, uh, next question. It's a very practical one. How necessary is it to pray a lot during the day and read the Bible? I like this one. Uh, I like it because I have struggled with this question. And I remember when I was in seminary, we were assigned a book by a guy named E.M. Bounds called Power Through Prayer. And full confession here, that book overwhelmed me. Like, I wouldn't want anyone to see the stuff I wrote in the margins because I was just like, this, I can't handle this. It had lines in it like these. It said, the great masters and teachers in Christian doctrine have always found in prayer their highest source of illumination. Now that doesn't bother me. That sounds good. But then it goes on to say, it is recorded of Bishop Andrews that he spent five hours daily on his knees. Uh, and here's another, John Welch, the holy and wonderful Scotch preacher thought the day ill-spent if he did not spend eight or ten hours in prayer. Eight or ten hours. I mean, there's not much day left after that. <clears throat> so there have been some Christian leaders who would probably answer this question by saying, yes, it is necessary to pray a lot. And uh, it, it, yes, it is necessary to do it very much. Uh, especially if you're in any kind of position of Christian leadership. My response uh, would be, prayer is extremely important, but I want to nuance my answer just a little bit. Okay? Um, prayer and Bible reading are very important. Uh, we should make it a priority to do them on a, on a daily basis. Uh, if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that one of the things that Bob McCoy talked about is the importance of paying attention to God. Uh, that was like his first main point. We should pay attention to God. If we're not intentional about paying attention, we don't hear from God. Um, and throughout history, there have been several tried and true ways of paying attention to God. So one of them is definitely prayer. Another one would be reading the Bible. Another one would be attending church taking communion, all ways of paying attention to God. God ordained ways of paying attention to him. But when it comes to the question of how necessary is it to pray a lot, like in the traditional sense of going into your room and getting on your knees or whatever position you take and just talking to God, that's where I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced in how we answer this, okay? Um, and I say that because of two passages that we need to hold in tension. One comes directly from Jesus. This is Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So right there, Jesus seems to be saying, Hey, when you pray, keep it short and to the point. Right? I know what you need. I don't need you to repeat it over and over and over again. You think that I didn't hear you the first time? Okay, but we, we need to um, 
Also keep in mind the second verse, which comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.16. The Apostle Paul writes, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray continually. The ESV translates it as uh, pray without ceasing. Okay? So now the question becomes, how do we balance these things? Don't go babbling on and on with pray without ceasing. What do we do? Okay. Well, I think that the secret to balancing that, to answering the question, comes with a bit of an adjustment in how we understand the act of praying. Okay. Uh, if prayer only means going into your room, you know, getting down on your knees and talking directly to God, then praying continually or praying without ceasing would mean doing that all the time. The more, the better. You know, even John Welch, eight to 10 hours, well, he could still do more. But not only does that seem unreasonable, it doesn't even seem possible, right? How are we supposed to have time to, uh, to work and for hobbies and for taking care of the kids and having friends and all that stuff? How are we supposed to live a full life if we're spending that many hours in seclusion in prayer? Um, not only that, but how are we supposed to take practical steps towards doing good works in the world, which God calls us, calls us to do, right, if all the time we're just we're praying? So here's the adjustment that I think needs to happen. Instead of thinking of prayer simply as that act of getting on our knees and talking alone with God, I think we need to think of prayer as being mindful of God's presence throughout the day. Okay, um, I would say praying without ceasing, ceasing means living your life in a way where you are constantly aware of the reality that God is here. God is here. Uh, it means recognizing that God is in the room before you speak, recognizing that he is in the room and he's with you before you act and when you act. And if you're always mindful of that, if that fact is able to take up permanent residence in your brain, that is going to affect how you speak, and how you act. And also, it's also going to influence how much you talk to him. Because if you know he's right there, you know, you're going to reach out and speak to him. So is it necessary to pray a lot throughout the day? Yes, in a sense. You should be praying constantly. Uh, you should be praying without ceasing. Uh, but not in the sense that you should necessarily be alone, you know, and the more the better of talking directly to God on your knees alone. Um, that's a valuable thing. We should do that. But keep in mind what Jesus said. He doesn't want us to just go babbling on, saying the same things over and over again. Um, so as for uh, John Welch, praying eight to ten hours a day, uh, I am not meaning to say that he was wrong to do that. I think that some people are called, they have unique giftings and callings, to pray a lot. You know, that may be part of what God designed John Welch to do, and that was the ideal thing for him to do. But I think, generally speaking, uh, for us, uh, eight to ten hours a day alone with God is not realistic, and it's probably not even a healthy model for, for most of our lives. Um, but we pray continually, we pray unceasingly by being mindful of the reality that God is here all the time. All right. Question number three. In the New Testament, there are verses about how we should do nothing which is not uplifting and supportive. Does that mean that things such as sass, sarcasm, etc. are sinful? This is another 
good one, a good practical one. All right. Uh, I suspect that the person who asked this is probably thinking of a verse like Ephesians 4.29, which says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, before I get into answering this, I want to say that I think the premise of the question we should do nothing which is not uplifting and supportive, or we should say nothing except what is, what is uplifting and supportive. I think that needs to be challenged just a little bit. Um, you know, I think rather than phrasing it that way, it's good to phrase it the way that it says in Ephesians, which we, we should only say what is helpful for building others up. Okay? Because when Paul says that, building others up, he's not necessarily talking about like stroking their ego or just saying everything you're doing is fine, but he's saying building others up in their faith, right? And so if we get it into our heads that we're only allowed to say things that are, quote, uplifting and supportive, that's kind of vague and undefined what that actually means. Like sometimes in Christian community, we're supposed, we're called to to encourage each other to maybe do things differently than we are doing, you know, and that might not always feel uplifting or supportive, but it can still be beneficial in, in building others up, right? If it's, you're thinking of building others up in the faith. Sometimes we have to say things to each other that are kind of humbling, um, but that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to say them. So I just, I just want to clarify that premise a little bit that I think we need to be careful about how we understand that. Um, but I think the real question here is, um, do sass and sarcasm qualify as unwholesome talk? And my answer to that is, it depends. <laughs> OK. Uh, one of the, the interesting things in Ephesians 4, 20, 20, uh, 29, yeah, that verse, is that phrase, according to their needs. Notice that. Uh, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. And in the ESV, I like what it says. It says, as fits the occasion. Okay. Uh, and that suggests that the kind of talk that is going to help to build somebody up is going to vary somewhat depending on who they are, what their life circumstances are, what their family of origin was like. You know, some people really like it when you shoot straight with them and when you're blunt and when you joke around a little bit. Some people appreciate a little bit of sass and sarcasm. Um, and some people are very sensitive. And if you talk to them like that, they're going to be turned off and they're going to be hurt. And it's important that we recognize that how we speak and what's going to be helpful for building others up is dependent somewhat according to their needs and as fits the occasion. And I would say part of being wise is sensing how to best communicate with a person in order to build them up. Okay. Um, do I think that sometimes a little bit of sass or sarcasm can be helpful in building someone up? And I actually think the answer is yes. Yeah. In some cases, with some individuals, it can be. And Jesus could be a little sassy and sarcastic sometimes. Definitely. Uh, he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 24, 
You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. That's kind of sarcastic. It's a, a ridiculous image and it's, it's confrontational, it's sassy. Um, and that's what he does. So if Jesus did it, it must be true that in some cases it's appropriate. So I would not say sarcasm, sass is entirely forbidden, that it's always sinful. I would not say that. But I would say that what is forbidden for us as Christians is using our words to wound people. And I suspect that that's why these particular qualities were singled out in the question, because we do intuitively know that sass and sarcasm do frequently wound people. They're often used to mock other people. And I'm not talking about playful teasing that you do with your friends where everybody knows like nobody's trying to hurt each other. I'm talking about like mocking people, you know. Um, even if you feel like you're in the right, using your, your words to wound someone, humiliate them, that's never okay. That is sinful. So if you use sass or sarcasm, try to do it in love. Like, then, as fits the occasion. <clears throat> All right, question number four. How are we supposed to live out our faith in light of the fact that most of white evangelical Christendom seems to care more about being comfortable than the difficult messages of the Bible? Well, not to be sassy or sarcastic, <laughs> but... I think the answer here is actually pretty simple. You live out your faith anyway. You know, um, when faced with a choice between being comfortable or being faithful to God, we're supposed to choose being faithful to God, even if those around us don't seem to be doing that, right? Um, we don't need anybody else to be obedient to God before we choose to be. So let's not let those around us we might perceive as not living up to um, God's calling control how we behave. Uh, we can still live out our faith. And if we model something different to the rest of the world around us, they may be inspired and uh, they may follow our example. So that's the simple answer. But I suspect that there is a question behind the question here, uh, which is not really how am I supposed to live out my faith, but how do we get all these people who are more concerned with being comfortable than being obedient to God, uh, how do we get them to change? You know, how do we get the church to get its act together? And that is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I cannot answer that question this morning. Uh, it requires great movement of the Holy Spirit. It requires some of us to stand up and be faithful and speak prophetically and, and all of those things. But I do have two suggestions that I think are important for any of us who feel like we're in this boat as we're moving forward. Uh, so here they are. First one is, let's start by not assuming the worst about our brothers and sisters. Uh, I sense some real frustration in that question. And I understand that frustration. I really do. I have felt it. There have been times where, especially within the last couple of years, I've, I've read things uh, that certain Christians have written or people who profess to follow Christ, and I've been like, how can you claim to be a believer and say these things? Um, so I get it. But 
I encourage us to be careful not to let that frustration turn into a judgmental bitterness, because uh, that's just really not helpful. And this, the question does make a pretty sweeping judgment. You know, most of white evangelical Christendom uh, seems to care more about being comfortable than the difficult messages of the Bible. Maybe that is true. Um, but I think it's best for us to assume the best about those who profess to follow Jesus. And that means assuming that deep down they really want to do what's best and they really do want to follow Jesus. And that might seem naive, but you know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love always trusts. So it's best to give the benefit of the doubt to our brothers and sisters. If we feel like they're in, in error, it's better to appeal to their better nature of saying, I believe you're a brother and sister in Christ. I believe you want to do what's right. Let's talk about what's right. Rather than just saying, ah, you're, you, know, you, don't, you don't really believe. You're not really a follower. You're, you're fake. Um, the other thing I would say is that if we want to challenge white evangelical Christendom to move past just seeking comfort, we should talk not, not so much about turning from comfort as turning to faithfulness. Uh, if you tell me, Ryan, you care way too much about comfort, stop it. That's not inspiring. Like, my gut reaction to that is, What's wrong with wanting to be comfortable? Everybody wants to be comfortable. Does God just want me to be uncomfortable? Is that what he's all about? Like, that doesn't help me. Um, so rather than pointing the finger at white evangelical Christendom and saying, you guys care too much about comfort, stop it, I think we need to say, guys, we need to care about justice. You know, we need to care about the poor. We need to care about the mistreated and the defenseless. Uh, we need to care about those who are hurting, um, both spiritually and physically. And here's the stats in the, in the research that shows here are the problems that we have right now. But at the same time, here are the resources that we as the church have and the power of the Holy Spirit to help address these things. That's inspiring, not stop caring about comfort just as any human being would, you know. Um, so I encourage us, let's try to inspire one another to uh, do good rather than chastise one another for wanting to be comfortable. Okay, one more question, and I save this one for last because, one, I think it's the one that probably applies most universally to all of us, and two, it's just the one that takes the longest to answer. Um, so, it is, lately I hear so much about pursuing God's purpose for our life. How do we truly know when we are living out God's purpose? How can we be sure we are following his will for our life? It's a good question. Good question. Now, I'm going to answer it with three main pieces of advice. Okay, and the first one... Uh, comes from the first thing that came into my mind when I read this question, which is the, the verse in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. Uh, and Micah 6, 8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So I thought of that verse and I thought, okay, this says, here's what God requires of you. This is what he has shown. So if we want to know, am I following God's will for my life? 
there's three questions that you can ask based on this verse. Uh, first one, am I acting justly? In other words, am I treating the people around me fairly? Uh, am I standing up for those who are mistreated? And am I refusing to participate in, in the mistreatment of other people? Am I, am I acting justly? Uh, two, am I loving mercy? In other words, am I a forgiving person? Am I, am I the kind of person who would rather see people restored and redeemed, or do I just want to see people punished? You know, when I'm wrong, do I lash out, or do I have grace? Am I loving mercy? And then third, am I walking humbly with God? In other words, am I maintaining a relationship with God? Am I living in a way where I'm mindful of the fact that God is here? Right? And am I doing that humbly? In other words, am I doing it in a way where I'm recognizing that God is my Lord and my leader, and I'm supposed to submit to his leadership rather than try and force him to do what I want? So if you can answer those three questions and say, yeah. Now, no, none of us are going to be able to, <laughs> to say yes all the time, you know, 100%, but this is what we should be shooting for. If we are generally doing these things, I would say, yes, you are walking in God's will for your life. So that's the first way that I would answer the question. Uh, my second piece of advice, if you're struggling with the question, am I following God's will for my life, is um, to remind yourself of what God's ultimate purpose for your life really is. You guys know what God's ultimate purpose for your life is? Uh, God's ultimate purpose for your life is that you would become more like Jesus. Um, not that you would like physically become more like Jesus, as people probably accuse me of trying to do sometimes, um, but that your character would become more like Jesus. Uh, that is God's ultimate purpose for your life. Uh, his ultimate purpose is not that you would have a certain major in college or that you would uh, pursue a certain career or even that you would marry a specific person. You know, I think all those things are very important, and you should bring God's will into every one of those decisions. But those individual decisions are not God's overriding purpose or concern for your life. His overriding purpose and concern is that you would become more like Jesus in your character. And there's good news about that. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is it's, it's hard to be like Jesus, you know. Uh, but the good news is that there's a lot of different ways that your character can become more like Jesus. Um, if you imagine, here's your life, and then from this moment forward, you have a bunch of decisions you can make, and there's a different paths you can go down, right? And you imagine, like, well, there's an infinite number of paths that you could go down, an infinite number of choices you could make. What we usually think of God's will as is this one path among those infinite paths that you have to walk down, and that's the one you have to choose, and you really get one shot to, to get it right. And, 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 and I want us to, um, if that's the way we're thinking, rethink that. Um, the reality is that if God's ultimate purpose for your life is for you to become more like Jesus, there's many of those paths that you can walk down, and that will still be happening. Your character will st still has the potential to be transformed uh, more into being like Jesus. Um, 
Now, when I say there's multiple paths you can go down, I'm not talking about multiple religious paths, but I just mean like what job you do, uh, where you live, that sort of thing. Your character can become more like Jesus in any location. Your character can become more like Jesus in almost any career. Okay? So, remind yourself of the ultimate purpose of your life. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, you, you often hear uh, Romans 8.28, um, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Most of us have heard that, right? That's a popular verse that people reference. Why can Paul say that and have that be true? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. If today there was a massive earthquake and you lost all your possessions, everything that you've worked for in your life, how can you, go, how can you then say, oh, this event can be used for my good? God can work good through this. How could, how could you say that? Well, if the purpose of your life has something to do with acquiring a certain amount of stuff, then no, that can't be used for your good, right? But, but if the purpose of your life is to become more like Jesus, then there is the potential for that to be used for your good because you can respond to that in a way that develops your character to become more like him. And that's why Paul says in the verse that comes right after this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. See that phrase there, conform to the likeness of his son. What Paul is saying is, all this stuff can be used for your good. Why? Because the purpose is for you to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to become more like Jesus. Finally, uh, a third thing I would encourage you to do if you're struggling with this question, am I following God's will for my life, is ask yourself, am I putting my gifts, strengths, and passions to use? Am I putting my gifts, strengths, and passions to use? You know, the Bible often talks about how each one of us is given gifts. And your gifts are things that you have that, for you, just come naturally. They're things that are easy for you to put into practice. And usually, you'll feel compelled to put them into practice. Um, and so if you discover in yourself a certain natural talent or ability or a certain uh, interest, it's probably something that God has put on your heart, part of how he's uniquely fashioned you, in order to bless the rest of the world and in order to guide you down the right paths in your life. Um, you know, I think sometimes we assume that God wants us to do whatever it is that we really don't want to do. Um, the most common example is when somebody says, oh, I don't know if I can give my life to God because I'm afraid he's going to call me to be a missionary in some foreign country, and that's just like the last thing that I want to do. And it's not that they have any evidence that God has called them to do that. It's simply the fact that that's the last thing they would ever want to do, so they think that must be what God wants them to do. And people will remember the story of Moses, right? Where Moses didn't want to go to Egypt. And he said, I don't want to go to Egypt, but God still called him to go, and he still had to go. Now, here's what I want us to realize. God does sometimes call us to do things we don't want to do. In fact, just the action of turning from sin in our lives is something that we don't 
naturally want to do, right? So like with Moses, sometimes God does call us to do things that we don't want to do. Um, however, most of the time, God leads us through the gifts and passions he gives us. Um, if you have absolutely no desire to go to a foreign country and be a missionary, chances are that's probably not your calling. I would encourage you still maybe to try a short-term mission trip sometime, just to make sure. Okay? But one of the reasons I say that is because I know people who really want to do that. <laughs> I know people whose heart's desire is to go overseas and bring Christ to people who don't know him. And I would suspect that they're probably the ones who are called to do it. Okay? Um, now, you still might be thinking, okay, what about Moses? He didn't want to go, but he still went. What about Jonah? He didn't want to go, but he still had to go. Uh, doesn't that mean that God might want or probably wants me to do something that, go, that goes against my natural interests? And here's what I would say. Again, it is possible that God wants you to do something entirely different than what your natural interests are. But, but, and write this one down, the evidence of God's calling is never just that we don't want to do something. Okay, Moses didn't wake up one day and go, boy, I really don't want to go to Egypt. I guess I'm supposed to go. Right? God showed up in a burning bush and told him, this is what you got to do. Okay? Same with Jonah. He received this call. He didn't want to go. Um, and then the ship that he was on, uh, there, was, there was the shipwreck, and a whale miraculously swallowed him. Like, there were reasons to believe that God's call was on these people's lives, even though it wasn't really what they wanted to do. So, <laughs> the evidence is never just that you don't want to do it. Okay? Be open to God leading you somewhere other than where you want to go. Um, but don't assume that he wants to take you where you don't want to go. So, in summary, uh, if you're trying to figure out if you're following God's will, ask yourself the questions inspired by Micah 6.8. Am I acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God? Remind yourself of the true purpose of life, becoming more like Jesus, and follow your gifts, strengths, and passions. And there should be a lot of freedom in that. You know, you don't have to always be uh, tearing yourself up inside, being all worried like that. Am I, am I doing the right thing? Am I missing out? You know, I think that if you kind of adopt this mindset, you can be pretty confident that, that you are walking in the Lord's will. All right, well, uh, that is all we have time for this morning. If you asked a question and you really wanted it answered and it didn't get, get answered, next time we do this, I think we'll do this about twice a year, uh, I encourage you to resubmit that same question. And if you're just burning to have me answer, um, just send it to me again through email directly, and I will respond directly to you. Because uh, I really don't want you to feel like if you have a question, it, you, you aren't able to have it answered. So, and I, I love to talk about all this sort of stuff. So, all right, uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that anything uh, that was said this morning, anything that um, you uh, inspired or uh, spoke to us, Lord, would be retained as we, as we leave today. Um, I pray, God, that uh, we would seek your will 
and uh, that we would realize the freedom that we have uh, even when we are walking in your will. Um, that there are multiple paths that, that we can walk down and uh, you will be with us. And um, God, I pray that you would help us to live in such a way where we are always recognizing the reality that you are here. I pray that that would shape the things that we say and the ways that we act. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the courage to bring our questions to you humbly. And um, I pray that as we seek, we would find uh, more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.